Collie, thanks for being here. I, uh, I'm going to go out on a bit of a limb here. If it's dead end, it's a dead end. Mm-hmm. I'd love for you to tell me about your watch. My watch? Ah, well, interesting. That was from the lady who is known as the last Mrs. Graham. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, she's my, uh, my. I was going to say my latest wife or my current <laughs> wife, but she is my last wife. Yeah. And she named herself that was my last wife. And for my first birthday when we were together, she bought me this watch, Incredible. which I've worn. And we've been together 27 years uh, this May. Yeah. And we haven't had an argument. Wow. Now, we've had disagreements, but we don't argue, mm-hmm. you know, uh, because I've discovered after two unhappy marriages <laughs> that that how to have a happy marriage. We allow each other to be, mm. you know, and... My wife will say to me, what are you up to now? Uh, and what I'm doing right now would frighten the hell out of her. <laughs> <laughs> so break that down for me, you know, as a relatively newly married man, you know, I think we're about five years into this game. Yeah. What's the difference between a disagreement and an argument? Well, a disagreement was that we don't have to agree on everything. Mm-hmm. But what we do is we agree to disagree. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and then we let it go. We don't we don't turn the disagreement into an argument about uh, I'm right and you're wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because who is right and who's wrong? It's true. Yeah, it's and true. we just and and the other question you ask, I ask myself: How important is it really mm. at the end of the day? So to set the scene, I suppose <laughs> pointed questions out of the bat. Here we go. How old are you? I will be 78 next birthday, but in my mind, I'm 47. <laughs> Why 47? It's quite specific. Yeah, it was just, uh, well, it was, well, I am 77 now, and I thought, you know, because the, <laughs> and we had a laugh about it last night was when I met the last Mrs. Graham was, I pretended to be five years younger than I was. Oh, really? Uh, and we were actually working out when did I tell her the truth. Mm. And... Uh, we actually met through, uh, used to be the, what did they call them? You know, those ads in there. In oh, yes. Lonely Hearts or something the like Lonely that. Hearts. We yes. met through a Lonely Hearts ad. <laughs> and um, she wanted somebody, a non-smoker, non-drinker <laughs> in his early to mid-40s. Right. Now, I happen to be 51. You deflopped the CV out a wee bit, did yeah, you? Yeah, I did, yeah. <laughs> <coughs> I, I sort of... Um, I actually said I was mid to late forties, mm-hmm. which wasn't a big a big lie really. <laughs> and then she said, "Well, until you really told me the truth, you did pass." What that <laughs> so that's interesting. I, I I didn't know when we would get there, but uh, one of those criteria was probably harder earned than than some people non drinking. Yeah, talk to us about that. Well, in- interesting today. You know, I walked down Donegal Pass, which was like a a walk through. Nostalgia, mm. because there was on the one side of the road there was the hideout pub. That's right, where I used to used to drink quite regularly. Mm-hmm. Then when I walked down Botanic Avenue, I used to drink in the Regency Hotel, and there was the old York Hotel. Regency's now Morningtown House. Those were all drinking dens because I would have lived around this this particular area, mm-hmm. and and I came to a point. Uh, on the 20th of February, 1974, mm-hmm. um, I was drinking in another haunt of mine, which was a place called the Abercorn Cabaret Club. Now, the Abercorn Cabaret Club was the most expensive place to drink in Belfast. Really? Yeah. And everybody said to me, Colly, why do you drink there? You know, beer's de- more expensive than anywhere else. You know, and spirits are more expensive. And I goes... But I can drink to four o'clock in the morning <laughs> because I had this uh, club for uh, cabaret artists who were entertaining and they would come back to this club and there would be drinking sessions there. Where, uh, was, where was this? Uh, well, the Abercorn was down in Corn Market. Okay, yeah. Yeah, uh, there was a bad bombing in it in the, uh, in the, in the 70s. So just there where the big spirally sculpture is now? Yes, or? yeah, just before that. Okay. Just, I, I think... Starbucks, where, sort of where, where the Liverpool shop is, would be actually ah, yeah, above yeah, yeah. it there. Yeah. You know, and I, I saw people there before they became famous, like Little and Large and people like that. 
And I once uh, had a conversation with George Best in there. Really? And it was one of the late night drinking spots. And sure, yeah. Northern Ireland had been playing football and the whole team. And there was the only two I remember is actually George and Pat Jennings. Pat Jennings because of his height. <laughs> yeah, so big. And, and uh, I was drinking double Bacardi's and Coke. And George Best was drinking just Coke. And Frank Carson, the comedian, he came over and he goes, Hi, Jordy, is this drunk annoying you? And George Best said, No, the fellow's doing no harm. But I was just giving it what for to George Best. <laughs> I must say, he was really civil to me and he tolerated me. Yeah. And sad, I've ended up sober and he ended up dying mm. from cirrhosis of the liver, which is... Which is a bit sad. But, so did you, you say nineteen seventy four? Yeah, that was that that was somewhere about that was actually about seventy seventy one mm-hmm. uh, because that was where I was gonna say institutionalized, but I don't know if you call the Crumble Road institutionalized. <laughs> I don't I've no idea. Would you call that actually to be honest with you? <laughs> uh, but that's another part of the story. No, that, going back to this particular night and I said to the the owner of the Abacorn, uh Dermot any chance of another drink and he called everybody Squire okay. and he said yeah he said to the barman yeah give Squire another drink there and there was a big guy standing beside me and he came out with a pure Ulster phrase um, and the Ulster phrase was give that man more, no more drink because he ends up a slabber when he gets <laughs> drunk <laughs> and that you know, and that was quite true I just uh I just, you know, I would have shot my mouth off and it got me into trouble a few times. Sure. Shooting my mouth off in the wrong place, yeah. you know, to yeah. do that. Next day, I really couldn't get out of bed. 21st of February, 74. I couldn't get out of bed to face the day. And I lay in bed in the afternoon and it must have been two, two o'clock, three o'clock. I should have been to work uh, <clears throat> because my job at that time was to go to 15, 20 pubs a day mm-hmm. and sell them what they needed to run the pubs. Yeah. Um, but I couldn't get out to go to work that particular day. And I, I wanted to talk to my father, who died a year previously. Mm-hmm. Uh, he died a young man at 52. Uh, he had begged me to stop drinking many times. And I really wanted to talk to him, but he was dead and gone. I then thought I would uh, go to... I'll talk to a psychiatrist. I'll drive up to Portiesburn. Yeah. And I didn't realise you just can't knock the door and say, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Excuse me, can I speak to a psychiatrist? <laughs> I didn't think of all that. And But then I thought I had been in mental hospitals three times before I was 22, uh, had ECT, which is electroconvulsive therapy. I think that's the right names. Where'd you get that? Um, I got it in the RAF. I said you want up photographs today. That's right, yeah. <laughs> and... First time I had, first nervous breakdown I had was when I was in the RAF. And I was RAF Hospital Halton and I, I got ECT then. Then I came out of the RAF and Tronan for Manor Hospital. I had two visits there, I had two mental break, breakdowns again. And they gave me a ECT, I think on just one occasion. Mm-hmm. Um, very barbaric treatment. The idea is it's yeah, tried it's to. Mad. I've only ever seen it in movies. Like yeah, um, well, you've seen one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah that's you know where you and it actually scrambles your brain, and it really is so bad that that I actually ended up thinking that I was a deceased uncle. My mother had a brother who died at the age of thirteen. Wow! And I actually went through a phase in the mental hospital thinking I. I was him. You know, so what do, like, what do you consciously remember of that experience? Well, I, I remember... Uh, like, does it all get wiped out from your mind, or do you remember? No, I remember, like, you know, I remember... Um, I was actually in the post office in Dungannon yeah. uh, at, the, at, this, at this second time. Uh, and, and what happened was my parents' marriage had broken up. Yeah. I was only newly married for the first time. And I started to get... This you know, I, I became very paranoid, mm-hmm. um, and I can remember actually seeing a morning newspaper, something like the Daily Mirror, something like that, and there was a photograph on the front, and I thought the photograph was aimed at me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and I had all this feelings of paranoia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I can remember the the other thing was that I I was living with my first wife with my father, 
at the time in, in a wee bungalow in Dungannon and I remember in the middle of the night I couldn't sleep that my brain was rushing and I went down to him in the in the room and I said to him, uh, don't speak, don't speak, the house is bugged. Mm. And I tried to write in the, in the uh, dressing room mirror and I tried to write with my, wet my finger and wrote on it, don't speak, the house is bugged. And I really did believe, and I, you know, and I just thought that a sniper was after me. And, yeah, 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 yeah. And and I, then you know, and I heard voices and mm-hmm. in my in my ears. And I, I I used to actually say the Lord's prayer and stop the voices. Wow. Now after that time, up until gosh, probably sixty seven, nineteen sixty seven, sixty eight. I was told that I would need some form of medication mm-hmm. the rest of my life, mm-hmm. and the medication became alcohol. I see. Um, alcohol and and a few street drugs. Now, I never was addicted to street drugs, but I, I just enjoyed the, what I would smoke, what's called today, wacky tobacco. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's when I ended up in London. One of the great things that I ended up in London, and I say great things, it doesn't sound great when I tell the story, I befriended two people, a fellow and a girl, who were heroin addicts. Mm-hmm. And the girl who was a heroin addict said all the veins in her in her arms and her ankles had collapsed and she was actually inje- injected into a vein in her breast. Mm-hmm. And she went cold turkey on the underground. Serious. And it scared the living bejabbers out of me. My goodness. And probably that saved me from the, the sort of, 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 hard, of hard drugs, Yeah, you know, to do that. Although I tested most things like speed and sure. few amphetamines and, and there was all, you know, ex- experimenting. So was it London where you had your stint being homeless? Yeah, I was. And most people tease me that uh, that I, I did it in the good weather, May and June. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you're going to do it. <laughs> I know, yeah. And that was, you know, and there's lots of interesting stories in London about yeah, I bet. Been arrested on on a film set for talking over the sound, <laughs> and it was actually I was and we got arrested for drunk and disorderly, but <clears throat> I had actually been given. Um, I'm not actually sure what what they were. There were some sort of a sleeping tablet, and if you fought the effect of sleep, you got a high with them. Ah, yeah. You if you par through, then yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So. So, uh, and we used to go to this hall. There was an all-night cafe in Fleet Street, the time the newspapers were there. And as long as you bought a cup of tea, and the only requirement in the cafe was don't fall asleep, mm. and they let you sit there all night. Wow. And the journalists would come, or the printers would come in with the early morning papers, and you could sit and read the early morning. So I'm making my way to f- up from, uh, from, uh, from Piccadilly Circus up to... Uh, Fleet Street to go to this all night cafe and, and I see them fire engines are actually spraying this building and I say to you guys what's happening there and they said oh they're making a film uh, oh I says that's interesting and one of them says to me if you've got any drugs that suggest you get rid of them <laughs> so I think I had a few tablets in my pocket which I, I threw out Yeah, but I was high at the minute went in there and they had turned this office lobby into uh, a film set like a hotel. Wow. And there was a bevy of beautiful girls sitting on the stairs. So I I sat down in the middle of them. Yeah. And I discovered that I am a loud talker because my wife actually told me to be quiet at a funeral the other day because I just I just seemed to talk loud. Yeah. So the sound man said, who's that coming over the sound? <laughs> so two policemen arrived and arrested me. And I appeared in Bow Street Magistrates Court and got fined 10 shillings, 50p, or a day inside. So opted for the day inside. But they threw me out at lunchtime when I demanded to get get fed. Yeah. <laughs> and threw me out. Next day, I got arrested again, this time for stealing a carton of orange juice on the doorstep at 4 <laughs> o'clock in the morning. <laughs> I saw the milkman delivering milk and, and orange juice. And two policemen appeared round the corner just as I lifted this orange juice, and I started to run. <laughs> uh, and I stopped running, and the two policemen caught up with me. And one of them said to me, "Why did you stop running?" And I says, "Well, I thought you'd blow your whistle." And he goes, "You've been watching too many films." <laughs> he says, "Did you think there was going to be fifty policemen appear when, <laughs> when I blow my whistle?" 
So appeared, I ended up in Bow Street Magistrate's Court again before the same magistrate. All right. Yeah. Now, what he actually sentenced me to was seven nights in the Salvation Army mm. and went to the Salvation Army. I learned a great lesson, uh, Matthew. If you're ever in the Salvation Army, one of the things you need to know is you put the ends, your bed ends, the legs of your bed, you put those in your shoes or your boots mm-hmm. so nobody steals your shoes or boots in the nice. middle of the night. Don't put them on. Now, I think I stayed there maybe two or three nights, I can't remember, because, again, the human ego, I thought I'm too good for this place. Yeah. So I've got a warm bed, I've got food, I've got a roof over my head, mm-hmm. and I go go and live in the streets. Mm-hmm. I go and sleep, I go and sleep rough. Yeah. And, you know, and how does, you know, that the human ego says, no, Collie, this is, no, you're not a down and out, you're different. Yeah. And I used to say I was different. I was a hippie. Mm-hmm. I wasn't a down and out. But, and it was that. <clears throat> so let me ask you this, because I'm sure you have thought about it, and I know you've you've been on a recovery journey, shall yeah. we say, since then. What do you think got you into those situations in the first place? Like, why, you know, why did you start drinking? Why did you start living life as a quote-unquote hippie? Yeah. What What were you running from or what were you chasing? Well, yeah, well, first of all, running, you know, why, why did that? Well, and, uh, I've been listening to your series on addiction, and I think, you know, one of the things that I can see about any addiction, whether it's alcohol, whether it's drugs, whether it's pornography, whether it's shopping, mm. those can all, all those addictions are to take you out of self. True. You know, and there's something about about that that you're wanting to get away from from this feelings of self. And I, you know, and those breakdowns that I see now and look back and reflect on them. Yeah. Uh were all all about self as well. You know, what about what about me being the victim all my life? Mm. And when you realise, you know, and and it's something I just read recently and, and it's a, it's almost like a mantra. I am enough. Yeah. I am enough, you know. Um, and, you know, what do we need to add to my life? You know, and one of the things that I can see is I haven't had a mood-altering drug since February 1974. Mm-hmm. Now, I like to say there were days that were so good. There were times I thought that mentally I wasn't uh, in a good place. Now, the amazing thing was that particular job that I said where I was going to the pubs and selling to the pubs, I did that job for another 22 years. Wow. Um, And I got promoted in the job. Uh, Another company recruited me to be a sales director, and I managed salespeople. And I spent all that time um, going in, well, the hospitality industry, plus hotels, restaurants, and and pubs. Yeah. and people said to me, how did, you, how did you do it? Yeah, it's strange. It's like being a teetotaler while mm. kind of selling to the industry. It's funny. Yeah. Well, one of the things is, you know, there are people who can drink and people who can't. Yeah. And I'm one of the people who can't. Yeah. Now, there was an old guy who owned a pub and, and I went to him and I said, listen, should I give my job in or what should I do? And he owned a pub and he had a problem with alcohol himself. And he gave me the best advice. He said, if you owned a chemist shop, you wouldn't eat the poison. <laughs> That's good, yeah. Yeah, so, so I realised, and, you know, and there used to be you know, some funny stories about um, one particular club, I remember, and beer reps actually have a, an expense account okay. to buy their particular beer for people who are in. And I was in this particular club and... Uh, and most of my customers knew that I had a problem with alcohol and I didn't drink. and Because they knew what I was like when I did drink because you used to end up drunk on their premises. Yeah. yeah. And this particular uh, beer rep was wanted to buy uh, beer for everybody. And and the bar steward, he said, no, don't be giving Collie. <laughs> don't be giving Collie any beer. We'd like this club to be in one, pl- one piece at the end of the night. Yeah. yeah. So that was, you know, so, so I realized, you know, that you know, there's nothing wrong with, you know, there's, there's people who enjoy that, who can enjoy taking a drink, you know, and there's people who can't. Yeah. And, you know, it's not my job I, to say to people, 
ban alcohol. Now, I'm very grateful for alcohol because alcohol has brought me to where I am today. Yeah. Because through, and you know, there's a great line which uh, is comes from no, Napoleon Hill, uh, and think and grow rich. He says, "What in every adversity is hidden the seeds of greatness." Mm. You know, and you know, and I said earlier about when I, uh, if they called being in the Crumlin Road, being institutionalised. Mm-hmm. Uh, People say, you know, that's terrible, Colly. You went to jail, petrol bombed a party not too far from here because uh, because they stole my booze and that was revenge and an alcoholic rage. Yep. And I was sentenced to two years in the Crumlin Road. Interesting time to be there because it was during internment. When wow. I was there. Just meant you got extra Christmas dinners. But the, the other thing that, you know, two things happened, happened to be in there was... I taught myself to type. Anybody sees me on a computer, I can type with both hands. And they go, oh, where'd you learn to do that? Uh, I said, when I was the governor's assistant in the Crumlin Road, I used mm-hmm. to have to type out because they gave me this job in the library. But the only, the greatest thing that happened was that a guy that I shared a cell with was in for drunken driving. And he said to me, no, your problem's alcohol, Collie, and you need to do something about it. And he was the guy, he he planted the seed. Wow. Now, I didn't want to think, because I loved alcohol, I loved beer. Sure, yeah. I loved, uh, I, I, I discovered Bacardi, I loved Bacardi. But what I didn't, uh, didn't particularly like spirits, but I liked the effect. Yeah. Uh, and that's why, um, and this guy pointed out to me and he said, Collie, you know, uh, you're an alcoholic. And I drank for another 18 months of that until I got to a point in my life that I couldn't uh, I couldn't go on. And that's, you know, where we're talking about, about earlier. And what actually happened, and that's when I'm saying, I had this thought of talking to the psychiatrist. And then I had a thought, I'd like to talk to, a, I need to talk to a clergyman. Mm. Now, on reflection today, I can see that alcoholism is a spiritual ma- malady. I've come to see that today. So I knew that I was going in the right direction. Um, and I walked past it, the Church of Ireland. I never actually knew until today it was St. Mary of Magdalene because I stopped <laughs> and looked at it because I actually went to that church and wrote down the name of the clergyman and his phone number and went into the old York Hotel to phone him. I never phoned the clergyman. Now, one of the things I discovered afterwards that that clergyman was the padre to Shaftesbury Square Hospital, which is a rehab unit. So I was definitely on the right path. Yeah. But I met some other people at that particular day who, uh, and I've become quite emotional because they gave me a life beyond my wildest dreams. Mm. I live today uh, emotionally well, mentally well, content at being collie. Yeah. And in a happy marriage, uh, I'm not particularly rich, but was when I'm saying not particularly rich, uh, we were actually clearing out some clothes for for Ukraine. There was a you know big collection in Balamina recently for, and I'm clearing out some clothes. And I says to my wife, "When did you buy that regatta overcoat?" And she goes, "I haven't got a regatta <laughs> overcoat." And I discovered I had a regatta overcoat that I didn't even know. Can't remember when I bought it. Yeah. You know, and it looks quite expensive. And I go, that's typical of you, Collie. Yeah. You know? Um, Now, one of the things today that I have discovered is I did suffer a lot of depression after I stopped drinking Mm -hmm. because I did the physical side of it. Yeah. But I didn't really look after my mental side of it. And that job that I talked about, I got promoted in the job. I ended up managing salespeople. I ended up in management. I had, and people looked at me and they'll go, there goes a really successful guy. Yeah. He's a manager of men. He's driving a good company car. He's got an expensive account. He's just bought his own house in Newton Arts. And I was down inside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I woke up every day. Cup clean on yeah. the outside. Yeah. Filthy in the middle. Yeah. And when I discovered, and, and I've read more about it recently, that life's an inside job. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever heard of Sid Banks and the Three Principles. Please tell me. Sid Banks and the Three Principles. Sid Banks was a welder. Okay. 
and he had a spiritual experience and he came up and he said, there's three things in life. There's universal mind, there's universal thought, and there's universal consciousness. Okay. And we're all made up of mind. Now, you can call mind, you can call it God, you can call it a higher power, you can call it, you know, my, my thought is what makes an acorn turn into an oak tree? Mm. There's some sort of a power in everything. Now, people say to me, well, tell me about this God you believe in. I go, I can't, you know, because if God's infinite, you can't describe the infinite. Sure. I just know that God is. You know, I don't practice uh, any religion. Uh, my wife is, does practice religion, and I know that she's a better person for, for her religion. Uh, I have a granddaughter or a step-granddaughter who's a, she's a born-again Christian and works a lot with, with missionaries. She tells me I nearly have God right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, and I just know there's a power. Yeah. And, and that's, and I had a spiritual experience after 22 years without drink, I ended up almost having another complete mental breakdown again. Wow. Um, what caused that? Yeah. Well, what what actually caused it was I'd started my own business. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that'll do it. You can stop there. No more joking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, that, and started my own business. And after three months, I went broke. Yeah. And where is the next penny coming from? And I took on a new mentor. And the mentor said to me great words. He said, your problem is you're running on collie power, not God power. Wow. And he sent to me, I don't know if you know of uh, Nendrum outside Cumber. Never. Uh, that's a very spiritual place. Nendrum was discovered by Queen's Archaeology Department in 1920. And it was an old monastery burnt down by the Vikings. And wow. it's on the shores oh. of Strangford Loch. Unbelievable. And there's the round tower there and there's the shape of the chapel. So this this guy who was in Long Beach, California, and I was in Belfast. And the reason he was in Long Beach, nobody in Belfast was going to know how bad mentally I was. Yeah. Because I would be a great guy for putting on a front. You know, this is me, look, I'm fine, you know. Um, Now, I don't know if you like people to curse, and you've probably heard the definition, it's fine. No, go. (laughs) I think it goes something like, well, the first word is, the F stands for fucked up, (laughs) insecure, Mm. needy, and emotionally bereft. Sounds about right. You know, spells, you know, the word fine. So... This, this mentor said, I can't be with you, but what I want you to do is find a place that's secret and sacred and sit for however long it takes until you have a spiritual experience. So Great advice. So I, I did that. And the watch we started with, I actually left the watch behind. And I don't know how long I sat there. This was 1996. And there's a round tower, and it was a November or an October night. And... Uh, blowy wet night and I and pulled this anorak up around me and I said I'm going to sit here for how, however long it takes. Now in the previous 22 years I'd read many spiritual books. I was funny was you know you asked me about books and I suddenly one, one of them came to me today that I'd be very fond of is Autobiography of a Yoga mm. by uh, I never can pronounce his name, but Autobiography of a Yoga is a book that really impressed me. And and I was, you know, and what was happening, all I had done was gain knowledge. Yes. Whereas people don't need knowledge, they need inspiration. Yeah. You know, so, so I go and I sit there, and to this day I don't know how long I've sat there, but I started to imagine these words, I am with you and I've always been with you. Mm. And I thought, yeah, I must have read that somewhere. Yeah, that's, I must have. And this is the thoughts in my head are going, I must have read that somewhere. Until it became very, very strong. And I realized that I just, I just felt different. Mm. I just, this, this thought became so strong. I am with you and I've always been with you. Now, I don't question it. Was it God? Was it not God? Was it my thoughts? What it was? It doesn't matter because the outcome since that night in October 1996 up until today, I haven't had a day's depression. The depression was completely gone because I know that no matter what happens, Matthew, I'm looked after every step of the way. Mm. 
You know, I joked about I came the wrong way. Walk, I walked the wrong way from the station to get here. Yeah. But I knew, well, I know the general direction. Yeah. Because the only thing is, uh, which I've become very aware of, is that intuitive thought. You know, that, and the word intuitive, an interesting word, is teach from within. Mm. And going back to the those three principles that we're talking about, you know, that mind can be whatever you describe it. Can it be God? Can it be a higher power? And your thoughts, and we can't, and I read this recently uh, with with somebody who, who I follow, a guy called Michael Neal, who's a great coach. And Michael Neal, he describes thoughts. Our thoughts are like trains, and you can decide which train to get on. Interesting. Wow. Uh, and if you're on the wrong train, get off and get on another train. Wow. That's very nice, actually. You know, and, and that I, I read that recently, and I thought, you know, that's... And really, you know, when the whole thing comes down to feelings and emotions, it's how it's how I treat my thoughts. Mm-hmm. Now, I wake on some mornings, and I have a friend who says the problem with life is that your ego waits up 15 minutes before you do and waits <laughs> for you and attacks you. Yeah, and... My first thought is when I throw my legs out of bed and I sit in the, and I just have that thought that I had before. I am with you and I'm always with you, mm. and and I just get that warm feeling. And particularly, um, my wife she goes to church online on a Sunday morning, and her minister. I was making my own breakfast and she was listening to the minister and he was, and she, my wife says to me, uh, "He's preaching today on your favorite Sam Colley." Psalm forty six, because the last, uh, the last line of, of that of Psalm forty six is something I would just again use as a mantra in the meditation, which is be still and know that I am God, mm. and it's that ability. I never could still my mind, mm-hmm. and there was always that racing thought, and there was always that thing that you know, that people are judging me. Mm-hmm. Um, I did some some work on myself and people. I realized that I always had a fear of uh, superior figures, mm-hmm. of people, you know, a fear of a boss. And that actually, you know, goes back to a lot of, I was, you know, listening to some of your other podcasts, going back to childhood stuff. Yeah. Where when I was in primary school, it was quite okay to, for the teacher to beat you up. Yeah. Because they beat the education into you and mm-hmm. they get thrown against the blackboard and, Scream at you! Can you not see? Yeah, and and I felt no, I'm too close to the backboard, really. <laughs> <laughs> Where you didn't answer back, or and you had, and I can remember. Oh gosh, I could remember drinking pint glasses of salt water to make me sick, help sick on a Sunday night, so my mother wouldn't send me to school. And crazy, yeah, and that's um, and I and I went to quite a. My secondary school was the Royal School Dungannon, which was a. Now, my family was very poor because my father's MS and there was very little money. And I felt so inferior in that school because mm-hmm. they're uh, the other guys who were boarders. And boarders were mostly the sons of old boys of the school. And there yeah. were dentist sons, there were doctor's sons, there were lawyers' sons. And here's the guy who had to turn up every lunchtime with a token for a, for a free lunch. Mm-hmm. And I and I felt that I was, you know, and I I can remember the face of of the cook, and I felt that she was judging me. The woman probably wasn't even <laughs> judging me at all, you know. But but it was all that poor me's. Yeah, you know that that was the train that you got on. Yeah, and that was yes, exactly. That was that that train of thought. Um, and I look back in school and go, you know, one of the things, to, uh, two things I loved in school, and one was art. Mm-hmm. And the other was English, and those were the the two. And funny, I have I have three step granddaughters, and they're all love English, and they all love art. Now they say is there's no genes, <laughs> but there's just something there that that's the, the same thing. Um, and and the love the love of English has become the love of 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 language. I love you know what's the real meaning of words? Mm. What does the word desire mean? Desire means off the father. Really? Yeah, desire, which is D in French for off, and sire is, you know, like a sire horse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the same as the word enthusiasm. Uh, Enthusiasm comes from entheo, 
which is God within. Wow. You know, so I've, I've, I've loved all those, uh, you know, and I, and I teach sales training and I go to, what's the word benefits? comes from two French, French words, bien and the verb ferry, to do or to make, bien being well. Mm. A benefit is how well do you do the job you're meant to do. Wow. So that, that love of languages. And the great thing about COVID, I rediscovered my art talent during I, COVID. I was going to ask you about the art, actually, if it popped up. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I, I sort of, I actually enjoyed lockdown. It was great. Yeah. You know, because, you know, and it's an old, which is a bit of, a, I think it's a trite saying, you know, what do you do when your ha- when life hands you a lemon, mm. make lemonade. But, it, you know, it's, I actually enjoyed, enjoyed the whole experience of lockdown and going, you know, how, what can I do? Yeah. I, I started, I'm still working. I, I created uh, something like 75 four minute videos of, of from a training company. Yeah. Uh, and I'm still working, working on that. Well, it actually launched last week where, and I, I've got to the stage. Well, it'll either work or it won't work. If it works, great. If it doesn't work, mm-hmm. sure, wasn't it fun on the journey? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, and I think that's the one thing I've discovered in life. It's not the end. It's the journey. So I want to go back to something you said earlier then, kind of on this vein. I think you described it as a mantra that I am enough. Yeah. I See, am. for most of us walking around here, like if you, whenever you're walking to the train and you just look at everyone walking past you, yeah. I would say maybe one in ninety nine will actually feel like that. Yeah, and that's you know, and that's because we're judging our, we're judging our inside by everybody else's outside. Mm. You know, and that's you know, you know, one of the things where um, my last my last overseas trip with my with my company was to Australia, mm-hmm. and I had to present uh, a two day workshop on key account management. So they sent me a list of 15 people who's going to be attending with a bit of bio of each of them. Mm-hmm. And I go, everyone on this course is better educated to me. <laughs> I haven't been to university. I left school at 17, a real mess. Yeah. Can't my way out of school to get leaving school. And I really got, oh, what am I doing in this? Mm-hmm. And then the amazing thing is I go, I present it, I do it. And I get the assessments and people praise me for good knowledge of the subject, well mm. presented. And I'm going, what the heck was I worrying about? Yeah. But then I read a great article um, by, um, I'm trying to think of his name, Tony Hopkins, Anthony Hopkins. And they asked Anthony Hopkins, what did he think was his biggest recipe for success? And he said his biggest recipe for success, as most people would think would be a defect. And he says, when I get a script, when Anthony gets a script for a film and the director says, we'd like you to play the lead in this, Anthony. And, he, and Anthony Hopkins says, I read the script and go, oh, no, this part's beyond me. I couldn't play this. No, no, I definitely couldn't do it. And then the director comes back. No, you're perfect for this, Anthony. We want you. We really want you. We don't want anybody else. We want you to play the part. So he then goes, okay. And he researches it and he says, I research it and I spent my time. He says, because if I picked up the script and I said, oh, this is wee buns. I could do this. <laughs> this would be easy. Yeah. And it's the same thing of me going to to Australia or wherever I've been to deliver workshops. Yeah. And and I, I would have this worry too, but every time I go to deliver training, is this what these people need? Mm-hmm. Um I recently, uh, we recently did that with two other sales centers. We did the thing, uh, Northern Ireland Sales Summit, which we surprised ourselves. Uh, we set ourselves a goal of having 30 people, and I thought if we get 12, we'll do pretty well. <laughs> and we actually got 57 people. Nice. And I, each of us was doing a 40-minute talk on sales, and I had a sleepless night, and my wife says, but you're good at this. You've been doing this for 20-odd yeah. years. Yeah. What are you worrying about? Ah, but is this what people need? Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and then I made a joke afterwards because what I did was I said I channeled channeled my inner Tony Robbins <laughs> 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 because it just seemed to be, you know, it's one of those things, uh, and I don't know if you've ever had the experience, when you, 
Well, it just seems to flow and you go, where did yeah. that come from? Absolutely. Where did that come from? You know, and, that, and that's because it's all inside us. Yeah. You know, and it, we just have to allow it to come out. But, but there, then, is, there is something to be said about almost just setting the ego aside and just letting it happen. Yeah. That, that, that is how the flow happens, I think, you know. Yeah. And that's, you get you out know, of your head and you just, just let it happen. Exactly. You know, and it's... And it takes a lot of practice to do it, you know, yeah. that because it gets into you saying, I'm not good enough. Yeah. You know, and that whole thought before I go to mm. Australia and going, I'm not good enough. And my wife says, they wouldn't have invited you, Collie. They wouldn't have mm-hmm. uh, paid for a five-star hotel. They wouldn't have, you know, played your flight to get there. Yeah. And uh, I, I've got to tell you, I laugh about the five-star hotel right, in, go on. in Sydney, Australian Harbour. So... So before I go, I look up the hotel. What's the hotel like? So they go, this hotel, every room has a view of the Sydney Opera House. Right. And it's right down, uh, it's only 100 yards actually from from the harbour in Sydney. So I arrive really tired after 20 hours of flying, get in, throw my bags in the room, and I look out the window and I go, and I can't see a Sydney Opera House out the window. <laughs> and I goes, what sort of a bloody hotel is this? <laughs> Putting it to their... And then I got this thought. And I have, I have a friend that originally from Lurgan now lives in Rockaway, New York. And he, he calls them God thoughts. Right. He says, you know, you obviously got a God thought, Collie. And the God got a God thought. And the God thought was... Collie, you never thought you'd be in Sydney, Australia. Mm. Your expenses paid for. Mm-hmm. You've lived in the streets of London. You've been to jail. You have recovered from alcoholism, and you're worried whether you can see the Sydney <laughs> Opera House or not. And then I discovered oh. if I leaned far enough to the left, I could see it out of the corner of the Very window. Very good. You know, and, and, you know, and, and that, you know, that is the point is, the most important thing I probably say is laugh at myself. Yeah. You know? And, you know, that, that particular Northern Ireland, uh, somebody said to me, a Nidget's a bigger idiot than a, an idiot. Mm-hmm. A Nidget, that lovely Northern Ireland words of being a Nidget. Yeah. You know, and also they said to me that day, oh, you're an idiot, Collie. Yeah. You know, look at where you've come from. Yeah. Did you ever think for a moment when you slept on the streets of London? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I met a friend today that I met 48 years ago and we were at an ATM and, and we were talking about yeah, and he both has been been travelling as well. And he said, "Do you ever think where we've both come from in forty eight years that we travel the world?" Mm. You know, I ended up after having that almost breakdown mm-hmm. that my business turned completely around. Yeah, and I've been paid to go to something like twelve different countries throughout the world. Yeah, you know, you know, and, and I would say, "Who me?" Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I still would have that lurking. That thought, Collie, you're a fraud. Mm-hmm. Somebody's going to catch you on one of these days. Yeah, you know, and, and what you know, and that's just the ego playing tricks with you. Uh, I guess, like where I'd like to end or start to end anyway is, how do you, you know, at seventy-eight, with everything you've experienced, how do you walk the? I don't know if tightrope is the right word. Between contentment and ambition. Well, well, one of the things was I discovered in the eighties, my ambition was to make a lot of money and be rich. Mm-hmm. Um, and I read something interesting the other day. You know that people, you know, this phrase is, "Oh, he's got so much money, he'll never have to work another day the rest of his life." Yeah. Now, one of the things I discovered is. Not working on other day the rest of my life would actually would frighten me. Yeah. Because I had an experience um, a few years ago where I had both my wallet and my phone stolen on the Enterprise going to Dublin. I was going to Cork to deliver training. Uh, luckily enough, I did have a, a spare phone that I had put a, a SIM card in so it didn't have roaming charges. And I came back after that trip and I goes, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm going to, I'm definitely going to retire. Mm-hmm. And I gave up my free phone number. I gave up everything. And I think it lasted, 
I think it la- don't think it even lasted 14 days <laughs> because there's so much Judge Judy and there's so much morning television Absolutely. that a person can take. Yeah. And and what happened was, you know, people kept asking for services. And I'm, I'm, lucky, I'm lucky now that, that people know, you know, my reputation, mm-hmm. I, uh, uh, existing clients, you know, still off of work. I'm working, I have one client who I've had uh, 21 years, I'm at my second year, and the guy who is the general manager of the con- company, um, he and I are actually best friends, and I'm, we're on a new project with the company. We're meeting up again tomorrow, and I enjoy his his company. We've ended up pals, yeah. Um, and I have you know other clients, and then last year I got I got one client last end of last year who turned up, and I goes, "Oh, why did you choose me?" And he said, "20 years ago, Colly, I took a workshop you delivered, and Crazy. I remembered." Wow. You know, so, and, and I, you know, one of the great things is, I, uh, 90, uh, gosh, 95, on the way back from uh, a trip to the States, I wrote in a notebook, I will start my own international sales training company. Mm. And I had bought a book at the same time when I was there. It was called uh, Do What You Love and the Money Will Follow. Yeah. You know, because, and then, that, that's what I was saying about that. How do you walk between ambition and mm-hmm. and contentment? You know, it's you know what what do you mean? You know, as I said, my ambition is I would like my online sales training to to make me an income of ten thousand a month because mm-hmm. I because the guy who sent me on that road's making that. Yeah, he's another a fellow sales trainer, and he said, "Colly, I think you should do that. You've got all the material. Will it ever make ten thousand a month? Doesn't matter." I actually had to go and talk to a solicitor because I had to write it into my will because I didn't realize it, that my website's a, you know, an asset. Yeah. You know, these things you don't realize. Will it ever become? I, I don't know. I yeah. just I just do the next right thing. Yeah. Yeah. And if it happens, it happens. And if it doesn't happen, well, at least I tried. Yeah. You know, what's the one thing? Uh, you know, that'd be nice to put in my tombstone. At least he tried. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. You know, because you know, the, the, I have a photograph of my father sitting to the left of my desk, along with that photograph that I sent of you of me as a baby, yeah. my mum and dad and my father. Now, my father, at the age of four, uh, he contacted MS, uh, never able to work, but he always, he was always trying to. He was always trying to make money. He was always had this entrepreneurial spirit, and yeah. he, he invented things like uh, he invented a hen tonic, <laughs> which which as kids we used to have to bottle up for him and put the labels on. And yeah. he, he sold this to farmers in the country to in the feed mix. He uh, he invented uh, Venetian blind cleaners, which was a it was a sponge that that he cut into teeth Brilliant. that you could use to clean Venetian blinds. And he was always. But the best thing I have never in what is he died at age fifty two, died in seventy three. I never once heard my father complain mm. about his illness or about about feeling down. And it's one thing I've discovered that if you meet a lot of people and have friends who have you know, have disabilities, but they don't complain. Yeah. They accept it and and is it people like me who have my have my Strength, have my health. Now, I suffer from a few. At 78, you know, you always ah, get you a pick few. pick up a few necks along the way, uh, you? Not, Yeah, mm-hmm. I've got this heart that's supposed to race, <clears throat> arterial fibrillation, they call it, but mm-hmm. the thing to do is just if, if the heart starts to race, is practice mindfulness and the heart <laughs> slows down. And, you know, this, you know, and it's not great that we live now when you look at that. Uh, oh, no. I, w- I was actually reading something today about... What happened to Motorola? Motorola didn't keep up with the times, mm-hmm. and Nokia came along, and nobody expected what Finland people in Finland are yeah. into IT, yeah. and Nokia just because it's that, that part of been innovation, mm-hmm. and the, one of the words I love, you know, that talk has been inspired, you know, and I always say it's the opposite of expired. <laughs> <laughs> 
You know, so life is about inspiration. So what inspires what inspires you, Matthew? What inspires me? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, and and uh, the other mantra that I would have, somebody asked me, uh, asked a, a, f- a very uh, well-known man, he was actually Richard Chamberlain, the actor's father, mm. and they asked Chuck Chamberlain, what, what motivates you, Chuck? And he said, it's not what I know, but it's what I've yet to find out. Mm. So perhaps that's something in life. It's not what you know, it's what you've yet to find out. It's nice. I don't know if, if we were recording at the time, but you, you did kind of talk about that curiosity in you. And mm. I think it's it's the curiosity in you that kind of keeps you young and yeah. you know, keeps life interesting, you know. You know, I, I know a lot of people of my age and they go, you know, what's Facebook? What's LinkedIn? Mm-hmm. What's... No, I don't spend my time on Facebook. I go into it occasionally or mm-hmm. I look at, you know, if there's something happen, I uh, I go into Pinterest to get a... And to get some ideas for mm-hmm. from a drawings and from a paintings, mm-hmm. one of the things was I don't know if you ever know uh, he was once uh, he was editor of the Belfast Telegraph, a guy called Edmund Curran. Okay, and Edmund and I were in the same class in school together, and Edmund was so brilliant that he actually jumped a year, <laughs> but the only subject I could beat Edmund in was art. Because he couldn't draw for tuppence, <laughs> but every he was just one of these guys. He was he was a good tennis player. He was good at maths. He yeah. was good at English. Yeah, you know, and and I said, well, at least there's something I'm better than. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, everybody's got some sort of a talent in, hidden within them. Mm-hmm. And my art is actually, yeah, uh, I actually I actually came third in a competition recently with one of my paintings. And I said to my wife, I think there was only three people in for that. <laughs> Plus, you know, but it's just, you know, you see, art is like building websites or like anything can be like you producing podcasts. That, that's, that's been the, that creative thing. You're creating something. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, and you're creating something from nothing, really. Yeah. You know, that's, and you've got to take it and mold it and shape it and, yeah. And and then give birth to it. Yeah, no, yeah, absolutely. So, have you any family then, Matthew? Yeah, I have a wife, five years, mm-hmm. lovely woman. I met in New York. All right, she's from Germany. We have a wee garden who's by year and a half. All right, it's our first and our only. And the joy of your life. Yeah, it's been really life changing. Yeah, I know people say that, but it has. Uh, it's changed everything. You know. And yet you talk about the ego, you get so in your head about I'm doing this, I'm doing that, I'm building this, I'm building mm-hmm. that. And then, you know, you hold a wee girl in your arms and you say, no, no, this is it. Yeah. You know, and it's not a one time life change. You kind of have to keep bringing yourself back to that place because you know what it's like. It's easy to get sucked into yeah. business and everything, but it's. And she doesn't judge you. She, you can see what pure love is. Oh, see, hang, hanging out with her is, yeah. it's unlike hanging out with anyone else in the world, you know, unless you're hanging out with other kids her age. Because yeah, they're yeah. just, they're just fully there and they're just so full of joy in life, you know. Well, that's, well, I, I actually skipped the kids. Yeah. Never had any children of my own. Yeah. Which is probably fortunate through two failed marriages. Yeah. But, and, in uh, this marriage, I have four grandchildren. Uh, one of them has made me a great grandfather. Wow. Now, uh, they, they, uh, their maternal grandfather was a police sergeant, and he was he died in a, a bomb in Derry, Londonderry, in in the early seventies when their mother was only eighteen months old. So they don't know him, mm. and then their other paternal grandfather doesn't bar- bother them, mm-hmm. and they actually. Their nickname for me is their real granda. <laughs> and the amazing thing is, I don't think I would have any less love or any more love. Yes. You know, I have any more love if they were actually flesh and blood. Absolutely. Yeah. They, uh, the eldest, my eldest granddaughter, were not actually, uh, there's no relations with her mm-hmm. before, mm-hmm. not even for my stepson. Mm-hmm. Um, and she has presented me with a great granddaughter. Wow. 
you know, so. But there's amazing wisdom in kids. You know, yeah, you know, you, 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 you kind of spend your whole life trying to get back to that place of just, you know, there's so much acceptance and, you know, you've talked a lot about the ego today, like that just gets, it feels yeah. like it doesn't even exist yet, you know. It's and like that, the ego, know? the ego wakes up, you say the ego wakes up now 15 minutes early, you know, it's mm-hmm. as if the ego doesn't really wake up for the first time until you're yeah. about, you know, seven or eight or something well, yeah, like that. Well, yeah, that's interesting. I've written something about that yet recently as well. Uh, that until you're seven or seven or eight, that you don't realize you're a person. You yeah. just are. Wow, that's so good. Yeah, you know, uh, you, you know, and it's when you realize I'm a person. Yeah, that the ego comes starts to click in. And yeah, there's a rule Dal quote I absolutely love, and I think it's called it's something like even. No, only the wisest of wise men take time to be silly. Yeah, uh, you know, I like that. I love that. Yeah, I really only love that. the wisest of wise men take time to be silly. That's my butchered paraphrase of it, but that's the gist, you uh, yeah. know. And that's it. And I love seeing, you know, I have a, you know, father-in-law maybe in his sixties. And he's a very, very wise man. He's a very serious-minded yeah. man. But see, when you get him around his grandkids, oh, he's mad as a bag of hairs. Oh, yeah, and that's... And he's silly and he's funny. And I just think, you know what? There's something to that. You know, and, this, you know, and kids never fail to amaze me because my great-granddaughter, Leila, is five and she was with another friend the other day who was five and their mom was doing some shopping. Mm-hmm. So they said... Let's play I Spy. Okay. And I'm going, well, five-year-olds five year olds really know what <laughs> I Spy is about. Yeah. And I go, so, and Leila goes, I Spy something with that, beginning with S, so we're all going, sign, and we're all going, you know, yeah, all yeah, the yeah, S's. Yeah, yeah. And she goes, it's, it's right in front of you, Sainsbury's. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, you know, it's because do we, you know, we look at them and say, and one of the things, you know, are kids more advanced today because of technology or because of, mm-hmm. you know, the, uh, you see, one of, one of the, I have a 17-year-old granddaughter who, who grandmother worries about her relationship with boys at 17. Sure, yeah. You know, and you'll get to that stage as well. Oh, don't, don't remind me. <laughs> <laughs> You've all that in front of you, Matthew. Well, no, 15 years. Yeah. And, you know, and Serena, she's named actually after the Serenity Prayer. She's called Serena. I love the Serenity you Prayer. Pray, yeah. 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 And I've never been an alcoholic, but I well, use it. All the time. Yeah. Well, it's it's so it's powerful, man. Uh, so powerful about yeah. you know about life yeah. to do that. The, the uh, but but Serena's got she's got a a powerful nature. And you know, one of the things which we didn't get into today, if you got me started in music, we would still be here. I the band and all that. Right. Yeah. You know, when I played and. One of one of those guys in the band is actually Godfrey Clark, the golfer. His father, don't, um, Darren. Darren Clark's dad. Wow, very cool. Uh, Godfrey was best man at my first wedding. Incredible. Yeah. Um, Th- does your best man change like throughout each wedding? Oh, it did, yeah. <laughs> Do you shuffle mm-hmm. in people you yeah. didn't get the first time round? Uh, I'm trying to think, who did I have? Did I have a best man the last time? The last wedding? Oh, I did. My, my brother. Very good. Uh, and my middle marriage, did I have? No, I don't think I had a best man in my middle, in my second marriage. And mm. Well, <laughs> let me ask you this. Like, this is probably, there's, there's two more questions I think that I really mm-hmm. have. And the first one is, I know I've said this repeatedly, but I'll say it again. You're 78. I'm 27. What do you think that a lot of young people don't understand about life or what's something that you think I'm just not quite getting because of my age life is to be lived you know is to enjoy every moment savor every moment of life you know I, I look back at my life and I look at the highs and I look at the lows I look at the mental hospitals I look at the prisons I look at the alcoholism would it change any of it? Would it change two failed marriages? Would it change my first wife who 
who too timed on me, who cheated on me mm-hmm. during the marriage, uh, the second marriage, which was quite stormy. No, they all made me the person that I am. Yeah. Now, at the time, I didn't want to be in that situation. Sure. But in reflection, I look at every, and I said it before, every adversity that I've had in life has made me the person that I am today. Mm-hmm. That when I realize that you'll know, come out the other side. Now, when you're in the middle of a situation, <laughs> it's not, it's difficult, you know, that there's a saying, this too shall pass, and I go, right, when? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But the other great thing about life is, is accepting where you are, that you're in the right place now. Mm-hmm. You're obviously doing something, Matthew, that you love. Yeah. You know? You know, uh, you know do you even think where it takes you? No clue. Yeah. Yeah. You know, maybe just go with the flow. And mm-hmm. and obviously, I think, you know, you're quite a spiritual person yourself that you've obviously looked at, a, you know, practice a spiritual path because you you have a depth that you're questioning that you're able to prove. And that's a great talent. You know, that, you know, that's when I listen to, I listen, first of all, that podcast with, uh, I can't remember her name, but the neuroscientist. Mm-hmm. I, I'd really, I'd, you know, it, it was so good, you actually got five pounds a month out of me for that. <laughs> 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 you know, I know I go, you know, I want more of this. And, yeah. that's, and, you know, and that's a great thing that you're doing for, for life. Like, you know, it's, you know, if, you know, that people can listen to that and feel They've gained something by doing it. That's a great reward that you can do to, yeah, yeah. To, that you you know one of the things that and people you know say to me, Collie, you know, you're train you train salespeople and salespeople have got a bad rap rep or bad rap, yeah, you know, and and you, how do you answer that? And I goes, I tell most people, forget about being a salesperson. Look at what you sell and ask yourself the question. Are you adding value to somebody's life mm. by what you're selling? That's the key, isn't it? That's the key. You know, what are you doing? Are you adding value to somebody's life? Yeah. And I said, if you're, what you're selling isn't adding value, then go and sell something else. 100%. Yeah. I, I think that is actually so key. I think it's so easy to miss. It's so it, it's subtle, but it's everything. Yeah. Like if you, what you're putting your hand to, like the plow you put your back into if it's causing harm or if it's not causing good, what you've got no incentive yeah. to do it. You know, and that's and I would in your heart know, of hearts like I, I have I have actually turned down work. Sure. Because I, I couldn't believe in what people were selling. Yeah. You know, I, I go, no, hold on, you know, this is I can't see any value yeah. in what they're doing. Yeah. And you know, and I just say no, I'm sorry. I don't think I can help you. Yeah, yeah, and that's just and because the important thing is, I think why salespeople get a bad rap. Rap it goes back to the old snake oil salespeople. Uh, it does, yeah, yeah. And I actually one of my pod or not podcast, one of my training videos. I have a picture of a snake oil salesperson. <laughs> you know, that this is going to cure all ills. Yeah, yeah, and that's. And I'm funny enough, you know, in, in the story like the second-hand car salesperson, and you know, used to be. I don't know if you're well, you're too young to remember, but when when Nixon came into power, the question used to be on the lips of the Americans: Would you buy a second-hand car from this man? <laughs> That's very good, actually. I never yeah. heard that before. Yeah, that one. Yeah, that was said about Nixon when wow. he when he came into when was it late sixties, early seventies, and crazy. Yeah. So end us here. We very briefly mentioned it before recording, and I stopped us because I thought, you know what, I want to use that. And I've just decided I want to use it right here to end us. Tell us about the. Not sure if you would call it a fable or a story about the Mexican fisherman. Uh, the Mexican fisherman. So there's a rich businessman on holiday in Mexico, and he watches this fisherman who is relaxing on the beach, enjoying the sun. Mm-hmm. And he said to the fisherman, have you not been out fishing today? Oh, he says, we well, went out early this morning, he says, and I caught a net full of fish and I sold them and I made quite a good profit and now I'm relaxing in the sun. So the businessman advises him that 
you know, well, why don't you go out and catch, go out back out again and go fishing four or five times in the day and you can catch enough fish that you could buy another boat and you could hire people to do that and you could leapfrog your business until you have a fleet of boats. And once you have a fleet of boats, the fisherman says, and yes, what would I do? Lie on the beach in the sun and enjoy it. <laughs> and that's you know, and that's why you know when I'm coaching people and they say yes, I want a certain amount of money, mm-hmm. and I go, but money's only an end to a means, yeah, or a means to an end. So, yeah, yeah, yeah? yeah, yeah. And I, you know, I one of the things that I discovered was, and I said early in the eighties, I around uh, the whole eighties, I was striving to be successful, whatever mm-hmm. successful is. Yeah. Right. And and I thought if I just could make enough money, I stopped doing the lottery because I thought, well, if you win the lottery, what could you do? You'd still have to, <laughs> you know, do you just build a bigger company or what do you do yeah. if you won the lottery? Yeah. Um, and then when I had that spiritual experience that I discovered the true meaning of financial security. Financial security is not actually worrying about money. Mm. One of the things my wife and I have discovered, the more we give to good causes, the more money her and I have. Mm. And recently, because of the situation in Ukraine, we've been looking at you know the Red Cross and UNICEF and mm-hmm. and people who need who need help is, and I, I actually have discovered in my life. Money turns up when I need it. Yeah. You know, where does it come from? Or, you know, I got another piece of work. Yeah. Uh, and one of the things my wife, you know, she said to me this morning, she says, I think we should fill up our oil tank before the prices increase. And I go, yeah, right, yeah, okay, let's go. You know, do I have the money? Probably, it'll probably appear. Yeah. You know, and and, and that again is just having having that faith and know I'm looked after no matter what happens. Yeah. You know, it's, and it's, I know sometimes when when I was, was your age, when I was 27, that struggle about, oh, where's the, where's the mortgage rates are high, mm-hmm. where's the next? I always seem to be broke. Mm-hmm. Now, I probably earn less money than I did relatively yeah. when yeah. I had, had a, a job in management. Yeah. But I've got more money than I need. Yeah. You know, so... So how does that work? Well, it just does. <laughs> uh, because most people, you know, they spend their life worrying about money. But, you know, and I heard the story from the same, from uh, Richard Chamberlain's father told the same story about uh, people that he mentored. And, and he said the $2 million man wanted into the $3 million man's club and the $3 million man. And I had a had a friend who who was a millionaire mm-hmm. and who lost everything. Yeah. And he actually said that he had more fear when he had money mm. about losing it. Yeah. And when he lost it, he discovered he had no fear. Wow. You know, so, and as, as I say, you know, you know, everybody says, well, money's handy when you're going to Tesco's, but, but you can only sleep in one bed and live in one house. It's true. Yeah, it's very, very true. You know, Golly, I've loved today, honestly. I've It's just been really fun just to hear some of your stories and hear some of the lessons from them and just get a bit more insight into who you are and what you think. So thanks for being here. I appreciate your time. And thanks for talking because I just love to talk, as my wife tells me. <laughs> <laughs> well, my job is to listen, so it's all good. It's a good partnership. <laughs> Thank you, Matthew. Awesome, mate.